what we have recently started is working through the 119th Psalm. And, and that is the longest chapter in the entire Bible, okay? There are, it, it's a, a poem, okay? And it's a poem that's set up um, as an acrostic poem. And so there are 22 stanzas through this poem with eight lines in each stanza. And for each stanza, the beginning line will start with a certain letter. And so the first stanza, the, the letter is uh, Aleph. So that is the Hebrew A. The second stanza, it is Beth, the Hebrew B. And it goes on and on down the line. Make sense? And so the way we're structuring this to get through this, because, you know, we did take two years to get through Ephesians, and we didn't want to do 22 weeks in one chapter in Psalm for your sake. We are creating kind of a chiastic structure, and that's where you, you take the stanzas at the two opposite ends, so the first stanza and the 22nd stanza, and you see the similarities between them and the second stanza and the 21st stanza, and you work your way back down to the center. And that was a common literary device in, in Hebrew because there, there's no adjectives in Hebrew, fun fact, okay? The, that is how they would help point to this is the point of what we are writing. Make sense? So we're kind of doing some funky things like that, working our way through that. So a couple weeks ago, you can listen, Bren gave a great um, introduction to uh, the, the 119th Psalm, just kind of a general overview. Um, the John Sitka, our worship leader, the, the cool John, the one that can get away wearing purple pants because I can't, um, he uh, started diving us through the, the first and the 22nd stanza and did a great job of diving into that. Um, today, I get the pleasure of doing the next set. Sound good? Let's dive in, okay? So to continue through Psalm 119, what we're going to do is actually go to Nehemiah 8 because that makes sense, right? So if you have a Bible, start turning to Nehemiah 8. If not, Justin will gladly um, throw, toss, pass over a Bible to you. Uh, you can just slip your hand up. Use your phone, whatever you want. But there's going to be a little bit of reading, and I am going to be getting my nerd on. Sound good? So any fellow nerds in here, we are going to have a lot of fun. Everyone else is going to wonder why we are taking so long getting through some of this. The, the books of Nehemiah and Ezra, are, they are written by Nehemiah and Ezra, respectively, and they are contemporaries of the same time, Okay. We're talking around 450 B.C., okay? I promise I'm not going to throw tons of dates out at you, but again, I'm getting my nerd on, and you get to come along for the ride. But we need to start back at about 1,000 years B.C. 1,000 B.C. is the time of David as king, okay? And that is the golden age of Israel as a kingdom, the, uh, king David rises up, he, he conquers the surrounding lands, he brings some peace to the land. The, the, the nation was never more wealthy or powerful or stable than when David and his son Solomon were at the helm. And there was some infighting that goes on, and you can kind of dig into that if you want. We're just doing kind of a general overview here. Um, but, but that is the golden era of Israel, and it all goes downhill from there. So as soon as Solomon dies, he's got two sons, and they decide to start bickering between each other. One of them ends up taking the ten northern tribes, and they become the kingdom of Israel. And one takes the two southern tribes, and they became the nation of, of Judah. And there would be constant fighting over the years between them. 
and without getting into the boring, let's be honest, boring details of First and Second Chronicles where you can read about a lot of this, there are a series of kings for both kingdoms that have mixed reviews by God, okay? So if this were the Apple App Store, Israel would have like one star and Judah would probably have like two as a review. Make sense? See, even, even the laughter. That's, we're doing good, okay? Let's keep it up here. So, um, the kingdom of Israel never has a king that God looks at and says, he is doing a good job. In fact, they are almost always condemned as having gone away from the God of their fathers, of having forgotten Yahweh God. The kingdom of Judah, it's a little different. They have about two or three kings where God says, this guy, he got it. By and large, over the course of about a dozen kings, it does not go well. It all just goes downhill. And so it gets so bad that eventually the kingdoms end up imploding on themselves. The, the kingdom of Israel ends up being taken into captivity by the Assyrian Empire. And the kingdom of Judah, a, probably about 100, 150 years later, ends up being taken captive by the Babylonian Empire. The, the people are taken into exile, um, which is a, a pretty way of saying that their nation and their national identity is destroyed. The conquering empire would take the people, they would split them up and spread them all over their, their kingdom, their empire, so that they could not revolt against them, so that there would be no national identity that they could use to band together. And so what we get is then Ezra and Nehemiah, about three, four generations in to this exile, are being pressed on by God to return back to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple and rebuild the walls. And you can you know, read all about it in there. Um, but, but what happens is, is they, they go and they are, given the, they are granted permission by the emperor and they re, rebuild. They, they get all of the people together. And in Nehemiah 8, where we're going to read, Ezra is standing up in front of the people and he's going to read them the law. So if we look at Nehemiah chapter 8, there's going to be a little bit of reading here. And I will be honest, I'm going to skip over a lot of these names because you don't need me to butcher those for you. You could probably do those on your own, right? So Nehemiah 8 reads, And all the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate. And they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, both men and women and all who could understand what they heard on the first day of the seventh month. And he read from it facing the square before the water gate from early morning until midday in the presence of the men and women and those who could understand. And the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. And Ezra the scribe stood on a wooden platform that they had made for the purpose, and beside him stood, insert your own butchering of these names, and verse 5, and Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, and he was above all the people, and as he opened it, all of the people stood. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen, lifting up their hands. And they bowed their heads and worshipped God with their faces 
to the ground. Insert a few other names here. Um, and these guys, they helped the people to understand the law while the people remained in their places. And they read from the book of the law of God clearly, and they gave this sense so that the people understood the reading. And Nehemiah, who was governor, and Ezra, the priest and scribe, and the Levites, who taught the people, said to all the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep, for all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. And then he said to them, Go your way, eat the fat, and drink sweet wine, and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready, for this day is holy to our Lord. And do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites calmed all the people, saying, Be quiet, for this day is holy. Do not be grieved. And all the people went their way to eat and drink and to send portions and to make great rejoicing because they had understood the words that were declared to them. My question is, when we read this passage, why? I, I don't know about you. But I have, I have read what they have read, okay? Um, the, the Pentateuch, the, the, the first part of Torah, the Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Ezra stands up at early morning until noon and just straight reads. Make sense? That's a, that's a lot. I have never been brought to tears by the book of Numbers. Have you? I have never... Um, just ground my way through the book of Leviticus and thought, oh wow, this is, this is really moving. Why this response from the people? What is it that he is reading that would strike them so profoundly that that would be their reaction? I, I think we lose a lot. We, we lose a lot of nuance because of where we are in history and what we understand, and, and, and the fact that oftentimes when we read, especially the Old Testament, we take a lot of it at face value and import some of our own understanding and our own culture into what was happening. But if we, if we kind of get into some of the nitty-gritty of, of the ancient Near East, if we understand some of what's going on, I, I think we can understand why they would react this way. They are a people who had lost their identity. They are a people who grew up in Babylon, whose fathers and mothers grew up in Babylon, whose grandparents spent most of their lives in Babylon, which is completely different than everything they would have known and everything they would have been raised with before. There is no mention of Yahweh God. That isn't part of the culture. That isn't part of who they are as a people anymore because they, they aren't a people anymore. They're completely dispersed. And when you start to dig into those first five books, but your lens is the lens that you view it from, from Babylon, it's a big difference. So Abraham, okay? You get Abraham, who God comes to, who God pulls out of um, obscurity and says, I am going to make you into a new kind of tribe. Well, that's, I mean, that's what everyone, everyone had a tribe back then. That was your identity. Those were your people. That was your foundation for your understanding of the world. And Yahweh God comes to Abraham and says, I'm going to make you a new kind of tribe that's completely different from all the other tribes you see. 
And so we, so for instance, we get the, the account of, of Abraham taking his son Isaac up to the mountaintop to sacrifice his son. That God calls on Abraham, bring your son up to this mountain for a sacrifice. And I think oftentimes we read that and we read, there is no sacrifice too great that I wouldn't give to God. And I would be obedient with any sacrifice. Now that's a dandy idea, okay? But I think if we understand what the norm is in that time, we would see how revolutionary what happens, how revolutionary it is what happens. Because God says, you don't need to sacrifice your son, I'll provide the sacrifice. Well, back in that day, everything religious was about sacrifice. All of it. So you would sacrifice your dove, okay? And you would hope that that gift would make the gods smile upon you and that you would have a successful harvest. Well, okay, the doves didn't work, so now we're going to do a goat, okay? So let's, let's do a, a goat. Wow, that, that didn't work either. So now what are we going to do? Well, let's up the ante a little bit. Let's, let's do a cow, all right? That's a, that's a lot of meat. So let's sacrifice a cow to whatever god, whatever ball, to, to make it so that your crops would come in, that there wouldn't be a drought, that there would be just the right amount of rain. Well, that didn't work, and so they would continue upping the ante. Can you see how eventually that anxiety would lead to child sacrifice? That you are so desperate for survival that now we, we've got to keep making the gift bigger. We've got to keep making the gift better. And in, in the ancient Near East, your firstborn son was the most prized possession that you have. That is the legacy of you. That is the legacy of your tribe. That is where everything flows to. Can you see how eventually we could get to the point where that's what we have to give to make the gods happy. And now, do you see how revolutionary it is that Yahweh God would say, I'm not that kind of God. I'll provide the sacrifice. You don't have to. Do you see how big? And that's, that's what they were doing in Babylon. That's what they knew was that anxiety of more sacrifices and keep upping it and, and make it bigger. And, oh, but there's this God who says, you don't have to do that. I'll do it for you. Or let's, let's talk about Noah, okay? All the ancient world had different, different um, flood stories, okay? And so in Babylon especially, they have the Epic of Gilgamesh. And that's one of the most um, studied uh, poems in antiquity. And they, they would talk about how there was this flood and there was this great hero Gilgamesh and he escapes the flood by doing all these mighty deeds. And then you put Noah next to that. No, here's a God who says, I'll save you. I'll save the people. I'll give you a future. And then I'm going to promise that you don't ever have to worry about this happening again. Do we see how that's revolutionary? Can you enter into that world where you feel that stress and that anxiety? I don't I mean, how am I going to make the gods happy? But you don't have to. Let's talk about the Exodus, where you, Israel, were slaves. You worked seven days a week. 
you built bricks for your masters, and they built empires off of your backs. But now I'm going to take you out of that. And now you're going to have a day of rest, a day where you understand you don't have to do that, a day where you understand God is going to take care of you even though you're not working. Can you see how revolutionary that is? What about the Levitical law? You start just grinding your way through the book of Leviticus and you're like, I don't even know why this is a big deal. Can you see how if you don't know what the gods want from you, that there is a fear constantly humming below the surface? Ah, but now we know what God is wanting from us. Can you, can you see how the people might react that way? Can you feel that anxiety being lifted off? Where all of a sudden, oh no, this God, he provides the sacrifice. This God, he's going to work with me where I am. This God, he's going to be clear about what he wants. This God, he wants the best for me. He wants to give me the good lands. He wants peace and wholeness and purity. Can we see how that might be re the, the reaction? Could we maybe even join in them, in with them? So what does this have to do with Psalm 119, right? The, the book of Psalms is a, a compilation of the songs and poems of Israel. And there are a certain psalms that are ascribed to David, who we talked about, who was a, a poet king and would write these just gritty, emotional songs and poems about how he and God would interact. And there are psalms written by other worship leaders, essentially, of different times throughout Israel's history. And then there are a small group of psalms that, that scholars think, judging by the language and, and the structure of the Hebrew, comes from the time of Ezra and Nehemiah. And Psalm 119 is one of those. Now, could we, could we maybe understand? Well, let's, let's read Psalm 119. So it's going to be 119, 9 through 16, and then we're going to jump to the, sta the opposite stanza, which is 161 through 168. So Psalm 119.9 says, How can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. With my whole heart I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Blessed are you, O Lord. Teach me your statutes. With my lips I declare all the rules of your mouth. In the way of your testimonies, I delight as much as in all riches. And I will meditate on your precepts and fix my eyes on your ways. I will delight in your statutes. I will not forget your word. If we jump to 161, it says, Princes persecute me without cause, but my heart stands in awe of your words. I rejoice at your word like one who finds great spoil. I hate and abhor falsehood, but I love your law. Seven times a day I praise you for your righteous rules. Great peace have those who love your law. Nothing can make them stumble. 
I hope for your salvation, O Lord, and I do your commandments. My soul keeps your testimonies, and I love them exceedingly. I keep your precepts and testimonies, for all my ways are before you. This psalm beats a dead horse. Over and over and over again, it just repeats itself. It just changes the word a little. I love your commandments. Your precepts are always before me. My salvation is in your law. Every single line talks about God's law. When I started looking through this passage, when, when Bren was like, hey, we're going to be working through this, and this is the passage, uh, the, the very first um, commentary, I started opening up and reading to do some research, it, it quotes Augustine, who was an early church father, and he says, I don't have anything to say about this psalm. It just needs to be read and heard. And I was like, thanks, bud. That's a lot of help. But duh, how, how clear is that? How, how clear is the message over and over and over and over again? Your law is life. I rejoice at your word like one who finds great spoil. Great peace have those who love your law. Nothing can make them stumble. I have stored your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Over and over and over and over again, it's the same message. But could we see how someone like Ezra could write that in his time? Could we see the impact of getting back into God's word had on those people at those time and how big of a deal it was and how they couldn't help but write something that just kept pointing back to how good God's word is, right? They didn't even have Jesus. We, get, we even get the benefit of the whole picture. This, this year, kind of the theme we have really pushed for is maturity as a, as a church family, to go deeper to plumb the depths of, of life with God. To not just have some shallow understanding of some moralistic life, but to go deep into the things of God. To press into his word and to see how that is shaping us and changing us. How could we not say what Ezra says? Or whoever his friend was that wrote the song. How could we not say your word is life and good and salvation and remembering who we are changes everything. Like, we get to remember who we are with this. We get to see where God has been bringing us, what God has been doing through history, how he's been drawing our story to a point. Could we understand and could we maybe even join with the people in Ezra's day and weep? good this is? Can we maybe even join in with them on hearing these words, hearing these stories, diving into them ourselves and seeing and being reminded over and over and over again at the new kind of tribe that God has been making. The, the new people, as Paul would put it in the New Testament. How can we not respond like that? But we've got to dive into it, right? So a lot of times we, we may dismiss what was written in here as um, outdated or ancient or hard to understand or hard to apply or like we don't, we don't 
we don't sacrifice food to idols, so I don't understand what Paul is talking about in 1 Corinthians. Well, I don't really have, like, some temple of Artemis, so I don't, I mean, the things with the Ephesians, like, that's not really me. But can we understand the nuance? Can we enter into it with them? And can we be changed by that? But we've got to do the work for it. And that's the beauty of this psalm and all the different aspects of life that it takes a look at and views. How can a young man keep his way pure? So listen, listen. This isn't about sexual purity. This is talking, how can a young man have no contamination in his heart? How can a young man have no impure motive in anything? And Ezra writes, he remembers. How can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. And with my whole heart I seek you and let me not wander from your commandments. In the second stanza, when he talk, or the, the, the last stanza we were working on, when he talks about when princes persecute me, that was Ezra's life. They're rebuilding the temple and all of these neighboring kingdoms are attacking them and persecuting them and pushing against them and making their job more difficult. And what's Ezra's response to it? Princes persecute me without cause, but my word stands, or, or my heart stands in awe of your word. It doesn't matter because I remember who I am. I remember what you've been doing since the beginning, God. How can that not be a foundation we would want to stand on? So I'm with Augustine. I'm really, you, you read it and you hear it. You let it work in you. You let it change you. And you wrestle with it. The, the band's going to come up and, and we're going to start kind of winding this down. When we see what was written and when we dig into some of the nuance and we see what we've lost, how can this not be what we want? And I know it's hard. And I know there's some of you that you're like, but that's, that's not what I understand of it. That's not what I've heard. That's not my experience. And if, if that's the case, then why did this happen? Great. Let's wrestle through it. And those things should be wrestled through. And you should talk about it. You shouldn't just sit by yourself and let those things just brew over and over and over and over again. But we work through that. And my favorite part is what Ezra ends up doing. Is he sees the people weeping. He says, no, 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 no. You don't understand. This is a great thing. Go have a party. Drink, drink, eat, be merry. Share with those that are around you. Have a great meal with friends. Talk about how good this is and remember who you are and remember what God's been doing since the beginning. And it's the same for us. Man, it's almost lunchtime. I'm starving. Let's go have some food. Let's go remember who we are. And like I said, we get the benefit of Jesus. We get to see the story even more completed and more directional and more, uh, more trajectory towards what God is doing. And so um, John and the band, they're going to do what they do best and they're going to keep drawing us into this. And we're going to sing a couple of songs and, and I'm going to encourage you and beg for you to press into this some more. Whether this is the millionth message you've heard like this or it's your first time, you, you just press into it. And we get to sing aloud and we get to celebrate. 
who we are. We get to celebrate that there's power in the name of Jesus, that there's power in what God is doing and what God is revealing about himself through Jesus and through all of Scripture. That's a beautiful place to be, amen? So I will pray, we'll sing, and we'll celebrate, and we'll remember who we are. Father God, how can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. With our whole hearts, God, we seek you. And let us not wander from your commandments. We have stored up your word in our hearts that we might not sin against you. Blessed are you, O Lord. Teach us your statutes. And with our lips we declare all the rules of your mouth. In the way of your testimonies, we delight as much as in all riches. And we will meditate on your precepts and fix our eyes on your ways. And we will delight in your statutes and we will not forget your words. Please, God. And though princes and powers persecute us without cause, our hearts stand in awe of your words. We rejoice at your word like one who finds great spoil. And we hate and abhor falsehood, and we love your law. Seven times a day may we praise you for your righteous rules. Great peace with those, have those who love your law. Nothing can make us stumble. I hope for your salvation, O Lord, and I do your commandments. Our souls keep your testimonies. We love them exceedingly. May we keep your precepts and testimonies for all of our ways before you. We love you, God. We beg that you would press into us. It's in your name we pray. It is in your name we will sing. It is in your name we will celebrate how good you are and how faithful you've been, and that we will remember who we are. And all God's people said, Amen.